All right. Hey, let's get started today. Hey, it's great to see you here this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray over us and then um, we'll get rolling. God, thanks for uh, just, thanks for letting us all be in this place. I know this is um, just space that has been formative to many of our souls over the years, a place where relationships have been cultivated, a place where we have been stretched. Uh, and God, I'm just, I'm just glad to be here. So, God, for uh, whatever's going to happen here in this room over the next few minutes, God, for my friends in this room and all the places they will be this week, I pray that uh, through conversations and through uh, teaching and through class experiences that you will uh, just speak to them, uh, bless them, God. Um, will you open up, just, just broaden the capacity inside of them to be able to take in and to, to hold everything that they receive and everything they hear this week. I pray that we will be able to leave this campus over the next few days as people who um, are just eager to live from a place, uh, a centered place, and to live a life with greater courage. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, let me start with uh, two stories that have been formative to me over the last couple of years, and then uh, I'm going to take a little time, a few minutes, to kind of share what Josh and I hope to accomplish over the next two days with you, and then I want to go a little deeper into a specific uh, subject uh, for probably 20 minutes, and then hopefully either have a little Q&A with you before we leave. We'll just see how, how we're doing uh, with time. But here are two stories that have been really formative for me. Uh, when I look back over my adult life, and I've now, been, I've now been in ministry for 20 years. I've been in full-time ministry now 20 years, which is hard to believe. I started when I was 12 or something like that, all right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I've had a few years where I just felt like my confidence was hit, where I hit a low place, and looking back to see ways God worked in those years, in 2010 and 2014 and 2019, or three years where, for different reasons, there was just grief and some brokenness that I had to, had to process. In 2019, it just happened. I also had a sabbatical. It was not an emergency sabbatical. It was a planned one. And my family took a 17-day road trip all the way out to the West Coast. So I live in Memphis, Tennessee. We put 5,700 miles on our van over 17 days. So we went all the way out to the West Coast. And one thing I do with my boys every year is we do a dad-son baseball trip. We've done this now for about nine years. Our goal is to hit every Major League Baseball team by the time they graduate high school. So far, we've done 18 of 30. So on this trip, we went to Arizona, both LA teams. We also went to San Diego. We were in downtown San Diego. Now here's the thing, all right? My wife sometimes will tell us, I'm gonna go on the trip with you, but I don't go to baseball games. I just wanna go wherever the city is that you're going, but I don't care to go to the game. And my wife loves it. The, like to sit back in a hotel and watch Hallmark and order in food, like with, with just a quiet room, like she loves it. So we're in downtown San Diego, which is a gorgeous city, by the way. All right, we, we loved our time in San Diego. We're in downtown San Diego. The boys and I, we walked to the game, and my wife was going to stay on the 22nd floor. We were on the 22nd floor of this beautiful hotel looking over San Diego. So she orders in food. She's watching a Hallmark. And then I, the boys and I get to the game, and our, our routine is we walk around the stadium uh, before the game. We want to see everything it has to offer. And then the third inning, we eat a meal. The sixth inning, they get ice cream. This is just our routine. The seventh inning, I get a text from my wife. She said, hey, I decided to go out just to see what it's, what's in downtown San Diego, and I found a restaurant. I'm sitting on a patio. Come find me after the game. So we went, and we found her on this patio, and she was finishing her meal, and we had already eaten. We ate, we'd already eaten at the game, already had ice cream, but I saw there was jambalaya on the menu. I'm a sucker for jambalaya, so I ordered some. 
At this time, my boys are agitated because they're either ready to get back to the hotel to swim or to get back on their electronics. So they're doing what kids do sometimes or poking each other. They, I think they know if they, if they are so agitated that it makes Casey and I upset, we'll hurry things up and get them back to the hotel. So uh, this is going on. My boys are, you know, elbowing each other. And so when they brought me my food, I said, can you go ahead and bring me the ticket? So they brought me the ticket put the credit card in there, paid for the meal, went back to the hotel. The next morning we wake up, I woke up. And I was gonna get a workout in before Casey and the boys woke up. So I went down into the hotel lobby to go to the gym. I passed by a souvenir store. My wife likes to collect salt and pepper shakers. All right, so I thought I'm gonna go in there and get her a salt and pepper shaker from San Diego. There were two of them. So I chose the one I thought she would love the most. And then I got my money clip out of my pocket and I went to pay with my credit card and the credit card wasn't there. Now, immediately I blamed my kids because I was like, it's their fault. I left that credit card at the restaurant. So I called the restaurant and even though they didn't have breakfast or brunch, someone answered the phone. And I said, by any chance, like did somebody leave a Visa Bank of America card last night? And the guy said, sir, you're in luck. There were seven credit cards left at our restaurant last night. I said, well, uh, that's when I said, by chance, is there a Visa Bank of America card? Not just a credit card, but a Visa. And he said, sir, there's a, there's a Bank of America card, this, uh, America card that's here. And then he said, but judging by the sound of your voice, your name is not LaToya, is it? <laughs> I was like, I'm not LaToya. So I had to call and cancel the card. And it just happened that that week, one of the books I took with me on my sabbatical was Ruth Haley Barton's Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Fantastic book. And in the introduction, and I had remembered reading this, and in the introduction, she makes this one statement. She says, losing your soul is like losing your credit card. That sometimes you don't know you've lost it until you reach for it, and it's not there. And I remembered reading that early on in that sabbatical on that trip. And thinking to myself, great point, but that's not me, because I take great pride in not losing my keys and not losing credit cards, and here I was, having lost my credit card, and I remember reflecting, and then I pulled out my journal and just started writing about what this experience is like. And then a few months later, we're in COVID, where I just needed those reminders. If I am not taking time to remember that I am a beloved of God and living from this place, like I am going to get caught up in the, and especially early on in COVID, I know a lot of us, man, we were just trying to get things done, that it's so easy sometimes to lose your center your centered place and not realize how far you are from it or how much you have lost your soul. And I'm not, and Ruth Haley Barton's not talking about losing your salvation and needing back in, but just that core of who you are. Sometimes we can get so far from it without realizing how far we are and how much I needed that early on in COVID. The week everything shut down, the weekend before that, I was flying out to DC to speak at a, a, an event out on the East Coast. This is story number two. I board the plane in Memphis and there's an empty seat next to me. And then about a dozen 18 to 19 year old freshmen, freshmen in college got on the plane with their mentors. So they were going on a spring break campaign trip. A bunch of 18, 19 year olds with a mentor. So they're getting on our plane and this young man, 18 years old, sat next to me. I'm on the, uh, I'm, uh, on the aisle, he's uh, uh, next to the window. And I could tell immediately this guy had never been on a plane before in his entire life because he couldn't figure out how to put the seatbelt on. 
he thought it was a magnet. So he's trying to like put it together. So I said, hey man, just watch me. So I undid my seatbelt and just walked him through how to click it. So he clicked it. And then when we begin to move, he's like a little kid. And he's elbowing me. He's like, dude, you can, you can see cars out there on the highway. Like he was so giddy and excited. And then he elbows me. He's like, man, you can see people playing in backyards. I was like, I know, man. You can see out the window. You can see all that stuff, right? <clears throat> and then he leaned back in his chair and he grabbed his stomach. And he was like, whoa, man, I'm getting dizzy. Now, here's the thing. If you know anything about me, all right, my greatest phobia in life is throw up. Like I... I'm not the person, if you throw up around me, I throw up. I just despise the throw-upper for the rest of their lives. I'm better since I'm a dad. I'm better since I'm a dad, all right? I can, I can, I've been able to help out my kids, but, like, I don't, I don't do this. So I was like, man, this is not, this is not happening right now. And I, I handed him that bag, you know, you, that's on, on the flight. And, and I was like, dude, and then I start patting his leg a few times. And I said, look, I want you to do what I do. And I put my head on the back of, that, uh, of, the, of the chair, and he put his head on the back of his chair. And I said, I, <laughs> I said, I want you to breathe how I breathe. And I started taking deep breaths. And he took deep breaths with me. And it worked. It was fine. About 45 minutes into the flight, we hit some turbulence. And he looked at me, and he said, dude, we need to do that breathing thing again. So we, we did <laughs> I was like, all right, we did the breathing thing again. And, and, and he was fine. We got off the flight. He was like, thank you so much. What was so ironic is I was speaking at an event that weekend called Breathe from Ezekiel chapter 37 about dry bones. And little did I know that that next week, right, things are going to be shut down and how many times I was going to need God to pat my leg in the weeks to come. Like, I just need you to breathe. Take a breath. So I'm just glad to be back in this space here at Pepperdine. Like, this has been a place that's taught me that God has taught me, like, take a breath in life. Like, this is a place where, I mean, many of my friends come out here and we reconnect and relationships are cultivated, but a place has just been good for my soul, so I, I'm just glad to be here. If you have your Bibles, you're taking notes, I want to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 a little bit today, which talks about the cross, where Paul says, what I want to do for you is I want to preach Christ crucified. And literally in the Greek, it's to the Jew it's a scandal. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. To the Jew, it's a scandal. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. And uh, if you notice, I mean, we're talking about um, how love is the greatest of all things, which you probably walking in here, you're like, that class could go in a thousand different ways, right? Uh, Josh and I uh, were asked by Mike, and Josh, I don't remember if this is 2020 or 2021, to co-teach. And Josh and I, the, the one issue we sometimes have with Pepperdine, with Harper, is my son has a birthday on May 5th. Josh's oldest son has a birthday on May 7th, which sometimes gets in the way of, of Pepperdine. So tomorrow my son turns 15 years old. So I'm going to do the teaching today. Josh is going to do the teaching um, tomorrow. I'm jumping on a plane today to get home to be there for my son's birthday. And then my whole family's flying out to Abilene on Friday, where I'm the commencement speaker for AC's graduation, which just happens to be my 22-year-old niece's graduation. So I get to be the commencement speaker for her. And the way, I guess, God just set this up is now I just found out that it's going to be 103 degrees in Abilene Saturday. And it's outside at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. So I... Uh, 
I tried to convince ACU that, hey, y'all have gotten so good at this live stream stuff, can't I just record something that you could, you could play it both, or I'll do 10 a.m. live and play it at 3, but that, I will be there live. So anyway, I, I'm going to be doing some teaching today. Josh is going to be doing some teaching tomorrow. And today what I want to talk about is love, love in the cross. I have needed the cross and studying the cross over the last few months. I didn't realize how much I needed it. I preach the cross. I preach a lot more resurrection than the cross. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and the hardest sermon for me to write every year is a Good Friday sermon, the hardest one, because I want so bad to go to resurrection. And it's so hard for me to write a sermon that just sits and stays at the cross. Yet, Paul's not the only one. Throughout the New Testament, love and cross are seen in the same verses together. And let me just show you a few. I mean, one is probably the most memorized verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In 1 John 3, 16, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our friends. In John 15, verse 13, it says this, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, what Paul says is, but God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, and this is even, you read the end of Ephesians 5 today and you still don't know, like is Paul using husband and wives to talk about Christ in the church or is he using Christ in the church to talk about husbands and wives? But in that, Paul says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Josh, uh, Josh Graves uh, created a video, and Josh, I don't know if you were going to talk about this tomorrow or not, so I'm about to talk about it anyway, all right? Josh created a video about eight or ten years ago on, on the crucifixion, and um, I don't know the best way to even get that to you. I may post it just on my social media feed, because it's somewhere on your website, but I remember it being so good, and I went back and watched it a couple of weeks ago. And Josh Graves does this one thing in the video that I had never really thought of, but he talked about how most Catholics, if you've ever been in a Catholic church before, uh, most Catholics, their cross, so crosses that are in their churches or the crosses they may wear or tattoo on their bodies, for many Catholics, the cross has Jesus on the cross. Jesus is there. And for most Protestants, because Protestants also put crosses sometimes in our churches or tattoo them on our bodies or have them hanging in our homes or wear them as necklaces. Most of our crosses don't have Jesus on them. And for Catholic theology, which is immersed in the suffering of the world, right? Like, driven by compassion. For them, I mean, it's a cruciform life that we are called to suffer like Christ suffers. And for Protestants, it's, uh, you know, Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. Jesus is alive, so we want to live from a place of, of resurrection. And I thought you did a great job in the video, because what you say is we need both. Like we need to, not that Jesus is still suffering on a cross, but we need to be reminded that we are called, like Jesus, to extend the love of God in the world by entering, to the, entering into the suffering of the world. And we're also called to live from a place of victory. Right, that we are living from a place of the entire Easter weekend experience of death, burial, 
and the resurrection of Jesus. So at Sycamore View, we have two crosses that, that hang on our wall. So if you ever come to our church or you look up on our stage, we have two crosses. The very first sermon series I did back in 2008, when I was there, I did a nine-month series on the Gospel of Luke, and it was called Life Reframed. It was how Jesus reframes our lives. And I stood up one Sunday and I asked the church to donate frames. Any picture frame in their house or frames that were in their attics, would they donate them? And we had dozens of frames that people donated. And then we took those frames and had a couple of artists who placed them on a wooden cross. So all these frames are on a cross. So the whole idea is, you know, frames hold the stories of our lives and our stories come together at the cross. So that's kind of why we did it. And we hung them. And when we did, there were people in the church who did not like it at all. They didn't like it because they thought it was distracting and... You know, we, we, you know, that was the main reason. It's just too distracting. If we hang cr crosses on their walls, we're too much like Catholics, and then next, next is going to be candles, and then we're going to be a Catholic church. Like, you know, some of those concerns are coming in. So not, we were like, hang, just hang on with us, all right, because we think theologically we like what this means, and we like what this means even for communion, for us to be reminded in these moments that our lives come together at the cross. Nine months later, I finished that sermon series, and we took the crosses down. And guess who the people were who went crazy? Those same people. So they're still hanging to this day because every time we try to take them down, people are like, no, we liked what they mean there. We, and then that means we have to remind the church like why they are there because you, you can come into our church for a while. And if we don't tell you the story, you don't know. Like the reason we do it is our stories come together at the cross. Frames, they hold the stories of our lives. They all come together at the cross. So why do we wear crosses? hang crosses. Like, this is a big part of our lives, right? Like, what, what does the cross mean for us? And I've had conversations, and maybe you have too, with people that the cross is one of the greatest obstacles for them to come to Christ. Like, they, it, it's hard for some people to wrap their minds around sacrificial systems and why there has to be so much blood involved in the Christian faith and in salvation and, and why did Jesus have to die? And, and if we're not careful with our theology, like why did like God have to kill Jesus in order for salvation to come into the world? So 1 Corinthians 1.23, what it says is, Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, it's a scandal. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. To the Gentile, they can't even wrap their mind around it. To the Jew, it's a scandal. And what makes it a scandal is everything that was involved in a, in a crucifixion. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to die on a cross, right? And the Romans didn't invent the cross, but they perfected it. And there are stories of about 100 years before Jesus died, there was the real-life Spartacus who, lost a, who rebelled against Rome, lost a battle, and what they did for 130 miles all the way to Rome, all the way down a road for 130 miles, is they crucified 6,000 soldiers, 6,000 slaves, Spartacus' slaves, every 40 yards. Can you imagine 130 miles of that? In the year 88 BC, and Jews weren't, Jews weren't even big, like Jews didn't like the cross. They didn't like using the cross. But in 88 BC, there were a, a group of Pharisees who rebelled against Rome, and there were 800 of them who were crucified on crosses. And around the year when Jesus was born, there was a, a group that rebelled against Rome, and there were a few hundred who died on crosses. So I think Jesus would have even had seen at some point in his life a crucifixion. 
And some people want to compare crucifixion to a death chair or, or an electric chair, some form of some of the capital punishment or death penalties that we see today. In most ways that people die by capital punishment today, it's supposed to be quick. But there was nothing about a crucifixion that was supposed to be quick. It wasn't just about killing you, it was about humiliating you. This was for slaves and rebels. And for some people, it would take days for them to die. For Jesus, it took a few hours. But it was about you being completely humiliated in front of everyone. So to have nails in your hands and nails in your feet meant that there was no way that you could provide any comfort for muscle spasms, for all the gnats, the flies, the birds. I mean, it was to humiliate you in every way, to break you down in every way imaginable. And for all the ways for God to choose to bring salvation to the world, it was in and through a cross. And God could have done this anyway. It, like God could have brought salvation to the world a thousand different ways, right? But maybe there's something about the cross that tells us how serious God, God takes sin and we should take sin and how serious God takes relationship and how serious we should take relationship. So what's been really good for my faith, not just my preaching, but my faith, is to look deep at the cross. And there have been some helpful books I've read over the last six months. Fleming Rutledge wrote a book called The Crucifixion. It is one of the best books on the crucifixion I've ever read. I highly encourage it. It's a long book. It's deep. Scott McKnight wrote a book on atonement a little over 10 years ago that has been very helpful. What I want to do for the next few minutes is just walk you through seven images of the cross. And it's not that these are the only seven images. I just want to walk you through seven images of the cross. And I'm going to spend just a little more time on a couple of them. But here are seven images that I think we need to know. And as I go, walk through these seven images, I hope that this can expand your appreciation for what the crucifixion means to faith and to the world. I hope this can broaden how you think about the cross. Because the moment or whenever we think that we have like understood everything the cross, everything that was accomplished on the cross and everything it means for us, there is more to understand. There is so much that happened when Jesus was crucified. There is so much that happened for our lives and for the world. So the first image I want to talk about is Christus Victor. And this has probably been my favorite image for over a decade. If you've heard me preach cross, and for Sycamore View, for when they have heard me preach cross, most of the ways I have preached the cross in over 10 years has been Christus Victor. Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Talk about how on the cross, Jesus disarmed the principalities of the world. Jesus disarmed the powers of darkness. So on the cross, there was a victory that was won. And we like to win, right? Right. I'm, I don't know with some of you in the room, but I'm assuming you're competitive like, like I am. I'm assuming you've probably been a part of families before. It's like, we need to have a board game because we need our family to come together. And halfway through the board game, the family's not together at all, right? Like, we, our, our staff, like we do this March Madness bracket every year. <clears throat> and the winner gets to choose a restaurant. And, and we, it's really playful until like the games start. And then like everybody wants to win. And this year, our children's minister, Anna, won, and she knows nothing about college basketball. She chose her four final four teams based on the four states that she's lived in in her life. That, that is how she went about doing it, and she won. So on the cross, there was Christus Victor. There was a battle that was won. 
And one thing I've thought about over the last few weeks, and some of this came through preaching, some of this came just through how I'm walking with people through life and even reflecting on my own life. Like, what do you do in life when losses just seem to stack up? Has this ever happened for you? Like, it just feels like losses just stack. And what happens if we go through life with losses stacking and we fail to live from a place of victory? Right, what happens? But then what happens if losses seem to stack in life and we do live from a place of victory? Now, sometimes I think how we think about death, burial, and resurrection is that Friday, Jesus dies on a cross and the powers of darkness thought they won until Sunday morning when Jesus came out of the grave and the powers of darkness knew they lost. But according to Colossians 2 and Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and some other places, there was something that happened Friday on that cross that the powers of darkness knew things had changed. Now, I, don't, I don't know if they were able to envision or to capture, like in their minds, like resurrection is on the way, but there was something that happened on the cross where the powers of darkness knew they had been dealt a fatal blow. And on the cross, there was a victory that was won. Christus Victor is one image. Another image of, the, of crucifixion is scapegoat. Scapegoat. In Leviticus chapter 16, it's a beautiful story. Well, for most people, it wasn't beautiful for the goats, all right? But it, the, way it, the way it happened is you had two goats, and to begin with, they would face the throne of God. And as they faced the throne of God, they would ask the Lord, like, which of these goats is meant to be the sacrifice and which one gets to live? And then the one that was destined for sacrifice would be sacrificed in front of all of the people. And this is something they would have experienced. There were goats, there were animals that were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. But then what would happen is the goat that was alive would be deemed the, the scapegoat. And at that point, that goat would face the people, not, not God, the, face the people. So all the people are looking at this goat, and the goat's looking at people, and the goat's probably thinking, oh, great, who's going to take me home to live in their house? And the people are like, man, man, we're glad you're alive, but this, you know, you're not going to be alive much longer. This is going to be, you know, look a little different for you. And, and then this beautiful image, this beautiful moment would happen when the priest would place hands on that goat. And this symbolized all the sins of the people being transferred onto that goat. And then there would be someone who had been tasked, appointed by God, to put that rope around the goat and to lead them through the people far, far away. And this goat wouldn't be killed. It would be carried away. And this was... Something for an image for everyone to watch and experience. That they would watch this goat being carried off as, as far as it could go to symbolize how far God desires to take the sins of people. This beautiful image. And you just hope that person who's carrying that goat, that you're on good terms with them, because the last thing you want is to wake up at your house and that guy came and brought that goat to you, right? Here's a goat carrying all the sins of the people, and now that goat is here for you. But it was to symbolize. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, you have this moment where this is the, the chapter of the suffering servant. And there's one verse, Isaiah 53, verse 6, where it talks about how God placed on him the iniquities of us all. Doesn't use the word scapegoat, but it's that image. God placed on him the iniquities of us all. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, 
Peter uses this reference, having quoted Isaiah 53, that he bore our sins, like he took upon himself all the sins of the world. And I love Leviticus chapter 16, and for any preacher or teacher in the room, maybe one way you can teach it is like this. For some people, they need to be reminded of Leviticus chapter 16 of the goat that died. That there was sacrifice, that there has been sacrifice to take away the sins. Like there was a cost, there was a price that was paid. And some people need that image of that goat carrying the sins far, far away. Almost like you need to experience in your mind, in your imagination, what it is like for God to take your sins and to carry them away. You know, this is where in Psalm 103, when you read, um, you know, how far God, God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Like there are sometimes these imageries of we need to see that God has taken our sin and has carried it away. There's Christus Victor. The second one is scapegoat. The third is ransom. And this is an image that plays out through all of Scripture. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it talks about how Jesus was a ransom. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says he came as a ransom. And the whole idea of ransom is that because of sin, we have been, uh, because of sin, we are held in hostage by the powers of darkness, and we are in need of somebody to come and set us free. So there was a price that was paid, and Jesus paid that price with his life. Now, with every image of the crucifixion, if it's the only image you use, right, there, there can, can be issues for them. And for ransom, like there were always, there was a bargain, like there was conversation. So if this is the only way you think about the cross, you may have some difficulty at some point, especially if you use this for a form of evangelism or helping someone understand the cross. Because if it's the only way you think about the crucifixion, is Satan really the one's calling, is he really the one calling the shots? Like, is he the one who sets the price? Is he the one that's, you know, placing some contract before God? But the idea of ransom, I think for the Christian faith, is that we're, we're held in hostage by the powers of darkness and we were in need of freedom, which is something that plays out throughout all of Scripture. And Jesus was willing not just to come up with some price for it, but to pay the price with his own life. So it wasn't just from the resources of heaven or through conversation. It was with his own life. The fourth image of a crucifixion is the Passover lamb. And there's language even in the New Testament of how Jesus became the Passover lamb for us. In John chapter 1, for some reason, like John the Baptist, this is the image he uses when he first sees Jesus. Like this is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, Paul talks about how Jesus is our, our Passover lamb. And the whole purpose of the Passover lamb was to remind people of freedom. So Jesus has come. He's become the ultimate Passover lamb. The fifth image of the crucifixion is penal substitutionary atonement, PSA. And for most of us, this has been the way that we have probably heard the cross preached more than any other image of the crucifixion. And this is that because of sin, there is separation between human, humans and God. And there is the wrath of God that needs to be poured out on sin or poured out on the sinner. And Jesus stepped in our place. So Jesus took on the wrath of God so that we don't have to do that. So there was a substitute. Now, throughout the New Testament, you have atonement language everywhere. And almost every image of the crucifixion from Christus, Victor, scapegoat, ransom, Passover lamb, all of them have some level of atonement. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Like there are a lot of, there's a lot of language of atonement. And I can remember back in a, when I was uh, at church camp years ago, I can remember one, one class, one, it may have been a, the main talk one day, where the youth minister, and I'm sure he's working out of like the, uh, the best theology he had at the time, like good intentions, right? He wanted something good for us. But I remember what he did is he would just hold up an image of Jesus dying on a cross. And then he would talk about how when you sin, or if you do this, this is what you're doing to Christ. And what he wanted is just this conviction to come upon us, like, like God was mad at you, and you better be glad Jesus stepped in the place. I think we've got to be really careful how we talk about substitutionary atonement. If this is the only way we come at the cross, the problems you may run into in your own theology or in evangelism is how it portrays God. And how can you hold some of those verses I read earlier a little while ago about the love of God being in the cross as you think and talk about how Jesus became our substitute? The wrath of God was pointed somewhere. And the wrath of God was pointed at sin to set the world right. It's not because God was like hated you and now you're just glad that Jesus stepped into place. But, the, but their sins had to be atoned for. All right, the sixth one is this, moral exemplar. Now these last two have really taken off in the last hundred years. But how Jesus became an example, moral exemplar. Like in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus talks about there's no greater love Right, then you lay down your life for your friends. And this is the same place where Jesus talks about us. I've set you an example, and I need you to follow in my example. Jesus became a moral example. So as you see throughout like, all of the life of Jesus, he was sacrificial in the way he lived. He was sacrificial in the way he died. He set an example for us that now we lived in that same kind of way. We make sacrifices because we have seen how Jesus made sacrifices. Like Jesus' purpose of coming to earth wasn't just to die on a cross, or else Jesus would have come around the age of 30 and would have gone straight to a cross. But there was a life he lived, an example he set leading up to that cross. And he set an example for us. He was sacrificial in his life, sacrificial all the way in his death. And last but not least, the seventh one is this, solidarity. Solidarity, that Jesus became like us in every way. He became like us in every way. To walk the ground we walk on, right, to bleed blood, to die a death, to die our death. He became like us in every way. And solidarity, especially in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I think even John chapter 1, verse 14, where it talks about, uh, you know, the, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Solidarity, he became like us in every way. So there's Christus Victor, scapegoat, ransom, Passover lamb, substitutionary atonement, moral exemplar, and solidarity. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, you will find almost every image I walked you through in these five verses. Hebrews is a great book. If you want to understand atonement and crucifixion, just read 13 chapters of Hebrews. But listen to these five verses. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Just in those two verses, you already have Christus Victor, you have scapegoat, you have ransom, atonement. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. All right, so let me, uh, let me end with this. Uh, last September, Josh and myself and a few friends, we uh, went to the Grand Canyon. We, we get together at least once a year and just share our lives with each other and this this time we said man let's go let's go do something hard let's go do the grand canyon and then see if it strengthens our faith or makes us mad at each other uh, randy harris was there with us so we decided to do a seven mile hike three and a half miles down three and a half miles up on mile two going down i started having a a cramp in my calf muscle but i looked over and randy harris wasn't breaking a sweat and I just had this moment of thinking, man, I cannot get out hiked by Randy. I'm not, I'm not calling him old, but he's older than me, all right? And I don't look at Randy as someone who works out all the time. I was like, there's no way this can happen. Like, suck it up, Josh. But seven miles, we did the Grand Canyon. There are a few different ways to experience the Grand Canyon. Now, you can go all the way down to the bottom and get the view from the bottom all the way up top. And you can, there's no way to start your hike at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. To be at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you earn it, right? You go all the way down there. But it's, it, you see pictures of people who've been there, a gorgeous view. You can see it from the rim. So you don't have to hike at all. You can just go to the Grand Canyon, look over the side, and just be, I mean, it's fascinating. It, it's, it's beautiful. You can do what Josh and I did, where you go about halfway down. And there you can see down and you can see up and all the colors. It's gorgeous. You can choose to pay the money to get in an airplane or a helicopter and get the view from over the top. Occasionally, if you've flown out west, you know, they'll fly you over the Grand Canyon and the pilot may even come on and tell you the Grand Canyon's on your left or your right and you get like that 30,000 foot view. So there are a number of different ways to view this beautiful gift God has given us. And what has been helpful for me thinking through the images of the crucifixion is to get different views of how Jesus has brought salvation to the entire world. And this has given me ways to get creative with communion and with how I talk to people about faith and with how I envision the Easter experience. And three weeks ago, as I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, walking the way of the cross to think through all that happened and when we get to that point that we think we have understood or studied everything there is to know about the cross and crucifixion, there is more. And may God use this to grow our love for what God has done for us and the kind of people God has called us to be. All right, Josh, so tomorrow you get a chance to kind of clean up whatever I've done, right? Build on this, have fun with it. So I hate to, to miss tomorrow, but I know you'll do a great job. I mean, let me pray for us. We're pretty much out of time, and uh, uh, I'll stay around for a few minutes. We'd love to say hi to a few of you. God, for all you have done in and through Jesus to call us and bring us to you, we give you thanks. And we want to live from a place of gratitude today for all you have accomplished for us and for the world. In the name of Jesus, amen.